Well, good morning, Journey. We're, we're glad you're here today, whether joining us in person or online. Uh, if your learning style, if it's helpful to have an outline that should be in the bulletin, you can pull that out. And at this time, it's going to be a little chaotic for a moment. Children and teenagers, you can go to your classes. Uh, junior high, you're actually in the conference room today is where you're meeting. So children and teens, head on out. While they're doing that, after the service, if you want somebody to pray for you, you can go to that room right there that's open. If you have questions about the church, um, you can go to the next step area. It's out in the lobby and happy to answer some questions about the church. And if you need to spread out now, there's a lot more seats. So we, uh, you know, I think they had, I think she told me they had 2,400 Easter eggs, and I think they got them in about 10 minutes, something like that. It's an impressive display. If they could just clean up their rooms that quickly, pick up stuff off the floor. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the message. Dear God, we thank you for this time together, grateful for each person who is here. We know that you have a word for them, a word of comfort or conviction or challenge or encouragement. Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts to what your spirit wants to do among us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You know, once sin entered the world, Adam and Eve way back in Genesis messed everything up, defied God, rebelled. There was only one rule and they broke it. Uh, the world, the scripture says that creation groans. And all of humanity has joined Adam and Eve in that sinfulness. I have, you have, we all have. And so the world is intensely broken. And there are moments that reveal this to us. There are moments of darkness and heaviness. I sat in this uh, you know, sanctuary maybe a month ago now by myself, and my phone was kind of blowing up. Different people were texting me that there was an active shooter in Lathrop High School, where our youngest goes to high school, and that was one of those heavy, painful moments. Now, it turned out to be a hoax, and no one was hurt. It just happened just recently at Monroe, the same kind of thing, but we live in a world of darkness. We live in a world of brokenness, sinfulness, violence, uh, rebellion against God, and in a sense, because we have all sinned, we're all like cut flowers. We're cut off. We might look good for a time, but we're cut off from God, and we're cut off from the life that He intends for us. And so, I want us today to wade into the fact that we live in a time and a culture and a place of hopelessness, and yet God offers us hope Americans are struggling. Antidepressants have become the third most common prescription drug. Uh, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. was reading some rates um, back during the Afghanistan war. We were losing more soldiers at one point to suicide than we were to active combat. And uh, so I appreciate the word hope. I appreciate the concept of hope. John Eldridge says of hope that it's the confident anticipation that goodness is coming. It's a rock-solid expectation. He even calls hope the sunlight for the soul. Hope really is a profound certainty that God is for us, that God loves us. Now, when I think about hopelessness, when I think about darkness, I can't help but think about those earliest followers of Jesus 
They had invested, those apostles, some of those women had invested three, three and a half years of their life into Jesus. They believed he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and they followed him, invested in him, gave themselves, left jobs and families behind, and then they watched their leader, their friend, the one that they had grown to love, arrested, went through a mockery of a trial, was scourged and beaten and hung on a cross, and they watched him die. And I cannot imagine the level of despair and hopelessness that they experienced on that Friday. But then there was an event, an explosive event, that shattered their paradigm of thinking, shattered their worldview, and forever changed all that we know about life. And so I want us to look today, it's a longer passage, it's John chapter 20, verses 1 through 31, but stay with me, it'll appear on the screen behind me, it's in your um, outline if you want to look at it there, and it says this, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now Mary, Mary Magdalene, um, talk about understanding hopelessness, she had seven demons in her that Jesus drove out. Her life had been an absolute, complete, total wreck before Jesus. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, we just kind of blow past that, but I want you to understand that the enemies of Jesus were listening carefully, and they heard Jesus talk about the fact that he was going to die and be resurrected. And so they actually went to the Roman governor and said, look, you need to put a guard, you need to put the Roman seal, you need to make sure that this tomb is secure, that this stone is secure. Now that is a pointless, fruitless exercise, but that's what they asked for because the enemies of Jesus paid attention to the prediction and prophecy that Jesus gave about the resurrection. Those who were close to him act stunned and surprised. I think they're overwhelmed with their grief and their emotion and their loss and the crushing hopelessness that grabbed a hold of them. She saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. So the apostle Peter identifies himself as the one Jesus loved. Um, I mean, it could mean they're best friends, but I think what it means is that John the apostle, that the love of Christ had so dominated what his identity was that that's how he identified himself and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So notice resurrection is not on her mind. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now John is the one writing this. This amuses me a little bit because John puts in Holy Scripture that he beat Peter at a foot race. I just think that's funny. Uh, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, this points to the fact that this is not grave robbers. You don't unwrap a body and then steal the body. That's not what you do. Jesus passed through these grave clothes. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, see, you know, John sticks it to him one more time, Peter, also went inside, um, and he saw and believed. So John gets it. 
all of a sudden he remembers. He's like, oh, I know what this is. But they didn't fully understand. This is what the next verse makes clear. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So he remembered what Jesus had said, but he didn't remember and understand what the, whole, the Old Testament had said about Jesus fully, and particularly the resurrection. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? I think they're like, He told you this was going to happen. He told you he was going to do this. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is it you are, who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is like the highest title of a teacher in that culture, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, she says. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, so see that hopelessness, they didn't fully understand yet, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now that is a, a stunning moment. You watched him beaten, you watched him scourged, you watched him die, and here he shows up behind locked doors and says, peace be with you, which is more than a greeting. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I love the peace be with you because imagine their internal emotional turmoil. What they saw, what they felt, and Peter especially, he denied Jesus, denied even knowing him. And the rest of them, while they didn't do that, they all, every single one of them, abandon Jesus. And he says, he offers them peace, which is reconciliation, which is relationship. Again, Jesus, verse 21, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he entrusts them with a mission, which is amazing. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I view this as a prophecy because in another place, he says that you won't receive the Holy Spirit until he leaves. So um, that's Acts chapter 2 where that happens. There is some theological debate about that. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So the message of the gospel is the means by which you can receive forgiveness. No other way, no outside way. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, and his name means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, so here we have the doubter in the room, which I appreciate because I have not seen the risen Christ. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Probably because he's scaring the bejesus out of them. I mean, you know, every time he keeps showing up, peace be with you. Um, it's like angels. They always start with, do not be afraid, because everybody's like, ah. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So, I mean, there's a gentle rebuke, but there is an invitation to investigate the evidence. And Christianity is not some blind faith. It investigates the evidence and you make a decision. Thomas said to him, now this statement is probably, you know, this exclamation he makes. This statement he makes is one of the great statements of this entire book. In a sense, it's a climax of what is being said. His assessment of Jesus. This is mind-blowing. This is paradigm-shifting. This does not fit with what a first century Jewish person would have thought. He stands before Jesus Christ, a human, and he says, my Lord and my God. He attributes to him divinity. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. And here's a blessing for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we don't get the eyewitness. We don't get to be the eyewitnesses. We rely on the eyewitness testimony and other cultural bits of example, historical bits of evidence, um, and yet have believed. Jesus performed, verse 30, many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that's the long-awaited one, that all woven through Scripture, this is the one who's going to come and who's going to help, who's going to take care of the sin problem, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, I'm going to pull out four themes. I'm going to use the acrostic, the word hope, H-O-P-E. The first is H, and that is from hopeless to hope. When you look at this particular passage, you see over and over again, and when you look at the whole Bible, you see over and over again man's hopelessness, but we serve a God of hope. And we can have that confident Profound expectation that God is for us, that God loves us, that good is eventually coming. John 20, verse 16 of our text, Jesus said to her, Mary. And so there's this personal connection. She went from being completely devastated, completely heartbroken, to this is him. It's you. He sees her. And she sees him, and she responds. If you look at this text, John 20, verse 19, it says, On that evening of the first day of the week when the disciples together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Don't just blow past this. They are drowning in absolute hopelessness. They are afraid for their very lives. They watch what people did to Jesus. They watch what the soldiers did, and they think, we are next. And they are frightened, and they are terrified. So this is a huge theme in Scripture, that God offers hope in the midst of hopelessness. We see it woven all the way through. In the book of Genesis, we see an old Abraham and Sarah. And we see them. And here they are. They wanted children for years. And, you know, you just can't even imagine you know, she, you know, month after month, no child. And finally, they're told by God, 
You're going to have a child. You're going to father a nation. And they still had to wait. I think it's like 25 years from the time of the promised to the fulfillment. But finally, God does intervene and gives them their miracle child, and from him comes the Jewish nation. If you fast forward the tape, you get to the nation of Israel, and they are in slavery in Egypt. And here they are in slavery. That nation is in slavery longer than our nation has existed. And so here they are in slavery, crying out to God. And finally, their hopelessness is answered by the God of hope. And he sends Moses, the great deliverer, and one of the most incredible outpourings of the miraculous. They are delivered. He parts the Red Sea. They eventually end up in the promised land. God establishes a Jewish nation as we roll the tape forward. Um, and yet, they defied him. They turned to their sin. They turned to other gods. They worshiped idols. And so finally, God gets tired of it. And in the 6th century BC, God sent the Babylonians to conquer his people, the nation of Israel. The holy city of Jerusalem that the Jewish people thought would never fall, fell because God allowed it and even sent the Babylonians. The beautiful temple of God that Solomon had built, which represented the very seed of God, the presence of God among his people, and the temple was destroyed. And thousands of the Jews were dragged off into exile. This is one of the biggest premier pictures of hopelessness in the Old Testament, the exile. It is one of the darkest times in Jewish history. And when God talks about this in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 12, through his prophet, he says this. He describes what they're experiencing, how they're feeling. And he says, your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. And that's, that's pretty painful. Incurable? Imagine sitting in front of an oncologist and he says, there's nothing we can do. And this is God saying it. And maybe you have a place like that in your life, a place of sinfulness, a place of addiction, a place of burden, a place where you just keep falling backward. And you've gone to counseling or you've sought a mentor or you've read books or you've even prayed and you just don't feel like anything's ever going to change. Maybe you've had deep trauma in your childhood and science, sometimes it's encouraging, sometimes it's not. I was reading about um, those that have had deep trauma as children and how it affects their brains and their hippocampus is about 15% smaller than the average person. And it's like this permanent damage that happens. And it feels like that incurable wound, that injury beyond healing. And yet, literally, like five verses later, God does something different. And he says in Jeremiah 30, verse 17, the first part, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. God both acknowledges the severity of their wound and the possibility of his intervention and his healing and his miraculous power. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says of this passage, the one who is truly, utterly beyond healing will be healed. And yes, the Jews were returned to the promised land. But the greatest sense of hopelessness is about our own sin. And yet, God stepped in and he sent Jesus 
And Jesus died a painful death on the cross as we just celebrated in our time of communion. And on the cross, you know, to, to say anything on a cross, you literally had to push yourself up to take a breath and to say anything was precious. And one of my favorite statements that he says on the cross is it is finished. And it was an accounting term and it meant paid in full. It was done. And in that, he paid the penalty for our sin. And so sin and death, and he, he walks out of his own grave after paying the price for our sin. It's absolutely incredible as he walks us from hopelessness to hope. In a sense, the resurrection is like the receipt. You know, if you go buy a big item, you pay the price, you pay the cost. And to show that that price has been paid, they hand you a receipt. Now, if it's CVS, it might be four feet long, but most places it's real short, right? And you get this receipt, and the resurrection's kind of like that. So Jesus is raised from the dead to show us that the payment was accepted to show us that what he said about it as the suffering servant, that is, it is finished, paid in full, that that's absolutely true. That sin and death has been defeated. Jesus is the walking poster boy for hope. He goes to a funeral. He pops in on this funeral procession. And this widow has lost her husband. And then now, a little later, has lost her son. And they're in the procession and they're walking and here's her son in a casket and Jesus stops the procession and he says to her, don't cry. And you know internally she's going, are you serious? I lost my husband. Now I've lost my son. Don't cry. And then Jesus raises her boy from the dead. It's incredible. Or what about Jairus' daughter where Jairus comes to Jesus and and begs for him to come and heal his daughter. On the way, they kind of get hung up a little bit. By the time they get there, she has died. And people come and say, she's dead, it's too late. And Jesus says, oh no, she's just asleep. And he walks into that room and he tells her to get up. And he raises her from the dead. See, in the presence of Jesus, death has been defanged. There was a movie I used to watch as a kid. It's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I used to enjoy where the snowman monster, remember that? The, the snow monster. And he was real scary. And they, you know, they figured out a way. And they got this one elf who wanted to be a dentist. And they took all his teeth out. So they defanged him. Jesus defanged death. We still have physical death but we'll rise again. We still have physical death, but when we die, if we're a follower of Christ, we're in the presence of the Lord for eternity. And so death is no longer quite so scary. I think of two sisters and a brother, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they were good friends of Jesus, and Lazarus gets sick, and they send for Jesus, and they expect him to come. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. Surely he's going to come. But he delays, and he shows up long after, days after Lazarus is dead. And they're upset about this. And when he shows up, they, the sisters meet him. And each of them has their little interaction with him, and they're not very happy about this. And standing outside of that grave, Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
and you can say whatever you want, but then he had him roll the stone away, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out of that grave. And I believe he has the power that had he just said, come forth, everybody would have come out of their graves. He had to be real specific. And so what amazes me is that with the, the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, we have power in our lives. We can live better. We can live differently. It's the difference between a high jumper who, if he's really good, can jump maybe eight feet to a pole vaulter, if he's really good because he has this help, can jump like 18 feet. Your life can be different. You can move from hopeless to hope. And so we look at that large stone that was rolled away, that large stone that had the seal of Rome on it, that large stone with soldiers in front of it, and we see death, and we see it rolled away, and we see Jesus walk out of that grave, and we think, whatever it is we face, if God can do that, He can do amazing things in my life too. He can do the miraculous I love Romans 8, 11, which says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And so we, we can look forward to eternal life, and I'll get to that in a moment, but we can look to a life where we flourish and thrive in the here and now. So the H in hope is hopeless to hope. The O is the one and only. Jesus is the one and only. And so we look at our text in John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, and she says, I have seen the Lord. He is the CEO. He is the boss. He is the master of life. And I know we have this tendency to want to be our own masters, to be our own leaders in life, but you will do better. Life will go better if you make Jesus Lord. If you look at John 20, verse 28, you have this declaration from Thomas who says, My Lord, so my master and my God, give him the throne of your life. Part of the good news of the Bible is not just what Jesus did, that he offered us salvation by what he did on the cross, but who he is, and that he invites us into relationship with him. He is not just a moral teacher, he's not just a philosopher, he is not some political revolutionary, he's not just an inspiring a public speaker. He is the Son of God, fully divine. He is the only means by which we can be saved. Jesus is Lord. This is the cry of the church. And so we have Thomas, this first century Jew, shattering the paradigms and saying, my Lord and my God. No other major faith system claims that the founder died and rose from the dead. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, anybody you can come up with. Nobody predicts their own death and predicts their own resurrection and actually pulls it off. Nobody. There's a fundamental difference between Jesus and every other leader who asks for allegiance. And sometimes in our pluralistic society, people are like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. You can go to heaven by any path, any way. And, you know, you can follow Muhammad, you can follow Jesus. It, I, I think a good illustration, because they'll be like, well, you know, you could, go to, you could go to Seattle with Alaska Airlines or Delta or whatever, 
you know, it doesn't matter which airline. Well, it gets down to the pilot. And if I go look in the cockpit of the plane and the pilot's dead, I don't want to get on that plane. If he's alive, if he's defeated death, and the destination is eternal life, that's who I want. I'm going to pick Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand this. Because of Jesus, the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54, part B, death has been swallowed up in victory. See, the resurrection validates and vindicates the claims that Jesus has made about himself. He is the one and only. He is the Son of God. The P in hope is proven promises of God. All these promises about Jesus, he fulfills. I taught the junior hires recently, um, and Evan preached, and and I had one of the things was a sheet that I gave him, and it was 47 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And that's not all of them by stretch, by any stretch. But you have all these promises, all these prophecies, these details that you can't arrange. Like, okay, your mom's going to be a virgin. You're going to be born in Bethlehem. You're, and the list just goes on and on and on, and Jesus fulfills them all. It's like in the Old Testament, we're given a fingerprint of the Messiah, and Jesus shows up, and it matches perfectly. All these prophecies line up. Proven promises of God. The Old Testament predicts the resurrection of the Messiah in Psalm 16.10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. In John 20, verse 19 of our text, it says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They knew they were dealing with a God who would keep his promises. He made all these promises about Messiah, and here was Jesus. He fulfilled all the promises about the suffering servant that are found in Isaiah he fulfilled these promises, and so you can count on God. This peace be with you is more than a greeting. It's a promise to these men who are frightened, terrified, and hopeless. It's, it's this amazing gift that Jesus would show up and offer them peace, reconciliation, relationship, resources through which to deal with life. He invites them into a family, gives them a new status. The disciples had been called servants and friends up to this point, but now he calls them brothers. They're invited into the family by the risen Christ. In our text in John chapter 20, verse 27, he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. These are proven promises. We're allowed to investigate the evidence if you're here today, just because maybe it's a holiday, maybe somebody invited you, maybe your kids just like candy and eggs, that's fine. Investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. That's an invitation. Investigate those claims. Don't blindly reject it. Don't blindly accept it. Dig into it. I remember when I was in college, because I'd grown up in church, and it really bothered me. I said, you know... If I'd grown up in a good Muslim home, wouldn't I just be a good Muslim or Hindu home? 
And so in college, I began to dig in on the evidence for the Christian faith, and where I ended up focusing was on the evidence for the resurrection. And when I got done with that, and I'm gonna, not going to tell you that I was some big scholar as a college kid, but I dug into it, I read, I studied. I walked out of that going, you know, I believe Jesus walked out of his own grave. And if I believe that, then I have to believe all of it. And so these are proven promises of God. John chapter 20, verse 29. Now, we don't get the same level of evidence as the eyewitnesses, as Thomas who can reach out and touch the scars of Jesus. It says, And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But we do get evidence, historical evidence, cultural evidence, one that stands out that may not stand out to Americans when you just first read it, but if you understand first century Jewish culture, um, not our culture, but first century Jewish culture, uh, the fact that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. In Roman uh, culture and in Jewish culture, women were not trusted. They were not to testify in court. And so if you're making this story up, you don't have women as the first witnesses. That hurts the story. In American culture, it would be fine. But in those cultures, you didn't do that. The reason women were listed as the first witnesses of the risen Christ is because that's what happened. That's what happened. And so, you can dig into all these things. And I love the fact, I mean... Sad for them, but it's powerful evidence for me and for you. When you look at the apostles, every one of them except John, who wrote this particular gospel, um, he died in exile. But all the others died as martyrs for the Christian faith. So the people that saw Christ, saw the risen Christ, they all died saying he walked out of his own grave. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher who was also a Christian, said of the evidence of the resurrection, he said this, he said, I believe witnesses who are willing to have their throats cut. These guys knew the truth and died saying Jesus walked out of his own grave. I appreciate the testimony of a doubter like Thomas being included. I appreciate the uh, fact that James, the half-brother of Jesus, that he did not believe who Jesus was during his ministry. He didn't believe he was the Son of God. I mean, and let's give James a break. Stop and think about it. If your sibling was running around claiming to be the Son of God, what would it take for you to believe that? A resurrection. <laughs> That's what it would take. But James, once he saw the risen Christ, he became a great leader in the church. Or what about Saul, who hated the church, who felt like it broke all these traditions of the Jewish um, system and thinking, and he didn't quite get it. And he goes, he's on a trip to persecute Christians, and on the road to Damascus, he experiences, sees the risen Christ, and he flips. He turns 180 degrees, and he becomes uh, an author of much of the New Testament, he becomes an apostle. 
He becomes probably the greatest missionary the church has ever had. He hated the church. You know how hard it is to admit that you're wrong about something? I mean, start a little fight on Facebook. See if anybody ever admits they're wrong. He hated the church. He was headed in this direction, persecution, destroyed the church, and he met the risen Christ, and he flipped and he turned. And he died saying, Jesus is alive. These are proven promises of God. John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells, John tells why he wrote this. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's this person that fulfills all these promises, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love the story in Luke chapter 24 where these two men, they were followers of Christ, and Jesus had died on the cross. He'd risen, and they'd heard some stories about, you know, but they hadn't seen um, the risen Christ. And they're walking along on a seven-mile path, and they're going, and I guess they almost get there, and Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus kind of cloaks it so that they don't realize who he is. He wants to have a conversation with them. And he asks them what's going on, and they begin to tell him about Jesus and all that happened. And they, and they said this. They said, you know, we had hoped. See, they lost hope. They were hopeless. We had hoped he was the one. And in, in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I would love to have that on video. But I guarantee Psalm 22 is in there, Isaiah 53, and other passages that point to Jesus Christ. And he says, look, I fulfilled all of this. And then he reveals who he is, and they go running back to Jerusalem, which I appreciate because that's, that's a long distance, you know, seven miles. Ah, oh, got to run back now. But they were excited. The promises of God help us to redefine what is possible in our thinking. God makes these incredible promises and he fulfills them in Jesus. So that's the P, the proven promises of God. The E in hope is eternity. Eternity. We're all going to physically die unless Christ returns first. But Christians believe that death is a transition, not the end. For many people, I appreciate what one author said, death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. But that's not what Christians believe. We believe in eternity. It's interesting. People long for an afterlife. Like 80% of Americans believe that there is life after death. Now, it probably wouldn't be real specific and always be as accurate you know, in their description. But people long for this. They long for eternity. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God set eternity in their hearts. We, we, we look at a person that we love who dies and, and we're like, surely that's not the end. My father died last summer and, and I'm like, that would be so sad if that were the end. But it's not. He's in Christ and I'll see him again. 
in John 20, verse 31 of our text, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is a life that flourishes and thrives here. Doesn't mean there aren't problems. And it's an eternal life in the very presence of God, in the new heavens and the new earth, with new resurrection bodies. It's amazing. When I think about the new resurrection body, you know, a lot of people have body issues and oh, we don't like our nose or we're overweight or whatever it might be. Um, I wear super thick glasses. I would love to just get up one morning and be able to see. It would be so nice. Especially when the cat has flung my glasses across the room. In John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in the Bible it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We can grab hold of eternal life and we can experience and have confidence that this is not the end. Happiness will get the final word. Joy is the destination. Living in relationship and in the presence of God is where we are headed John Eldridge once said this, he said, For the Christian, hope whispers, all will be well. And we need to hear that. We have a living hope. You see, the big idea today is that thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hope prevails. Hope prevails, and so we can live expectantly. I'm going to pray to close this out with, we've got a few more things. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to have an announcement and a baptism, and then a closing song. So, dear God, we thank you for this time together. I'm grateful for each person here. Lord, I thank you for hope, that confident, profound expectation, that certainty we have in your goodness, and that you are for us, and that you love us, and that you have provided a way for us to be saved, and to be whole, and to experience eternal life with you. Lord, I just pray for each person here that they would grab hold of that gift, that they would approach one of us if they have questions about it. And Lord, we celebrate that we're going to see someone today publicly commit their life to Christ in Christian baptism. I thank you for this time together. I ask your blessing on each person here in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.